Famous last words. Some uh, famous last words are quite noble. George, George Washington said, It is well I die hard, but I am not afraid to go. Some are poetic. Emily Dickinson, her last words were, The fog is rising. Some are historically fascinating. Louis XIV, Louis Why are you weeping? Did you imagine I was immortal? Or Thomas Jefferson's famous question, is it the fourth? If you recall, Jefferson and John Adams both died on the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Some are sad. Pablo Picasso, drink to me. Some are tragicomic. John Sedgwick at the Battle of the Wilderness when he was told not to show himself over the wall. Nonsense, they couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. (laughs) It turns out they could. (laughs) Or Dylan Thomas, I have just had 18 whiskeys in a row. I do believe that is a record. Or John Rogers, a criminal, when asked at his execution for any last words or any final requests, he said, why, yes, I'd like a bulletproof vest. (laughs) Or lastly, Oscar Wilde, who said, you know, either this wallpaper goes or I do. More seriously, we do know that that final words are vitally important. And we read last week in our first sermon on the book of Acts, the final words of Jesus Christ. He, He said this, the final words to his disciples before he ascended, do not leave Jerusalem But wait for the gift the Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and to the othermost parts of the earth. Those are his final words before he he left the face of the planet. Obviously, tremendously important. And today, chapter 2, we get to to delve into the depths of the importance of Pentecost. So if you have your Bibles, Acts 2.1, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. They referring most likely to the 120 disciples. We read about them in Acts chapter 1 verse 15. They were all together, 120 of them, suddenly A sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound... A crowd came together in bewilderment because each of them heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, which would be present-day Iran, residents of Mesopotamia, present-day Iraq, Judea, in Cappadocia, Pontus, and, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, most of those are present-day Turkey, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, North Africa, visitors from Rome who uh, were both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans, small island, middle of the Mediterranean, and Arabs, present-day Saudi Arabia, 
We hear them all, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Let's pray one more time together before we hear the sermon. Spirit of God, we pray to you, wind and fire, take these words and write them on our hearts, giving us knowledge of the truth, love in abundance, and power from on high to be the witnesses on earth of our dear Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Answer this prayer, we pray, as, as, as your people. Amen. Has anybody here ever made it through a tornado? Have you ever been in one? A few back there. Uh, I've been within a couple of miles, never actually through one. Universally, people say that the sound of a tornado, it it sounds like a what? Sounds like a train. It sounds like just this train coming uh, towards you. Is that what Pentecost sounded like? What did it look like? You know, throughout the Old Testament, Fire is used to uh, de- depict what? Fire is used to de- depict the presence of God. And Luke makes a special point of noting that it starts out maybe as like one giant ball of fire, and then it individually comes and rests upon each of the heads of the people, like indi- individual flames resting on each person. I think the reason that's significant is throughout the Old Testament, whenever the Holy Spirit shows up, he normally shows up to empower special individuals, kings, priests, prophets. That's, they're anointed with the Holy Spirit. Here, he comes upon 120. The point is that the, pres- the ministry of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is broadened to encompass even the lives of ordinary Christians, you know, people like you and me. It's not just the 12 apostles, it's the 120 Christians who have the fire on, upon their, their foreheads. So I want you to consider again the scene of the event. There is a wind, perhaps a tornado-like uh, wind proportionately, which sends all of the city of Jerusalem out into the streets wondering, what's going on? Where, where did this come from? What is happening? And then they hear voices, at, at first at a distance, then growing progressively louder and louder. Uh, Men and women uh, who had traveled to Jerusalem from all of these different parts of the Roman Empire. Uh, I hear Parthian being spoken. Whoa, perfect Elamitish (laughs) diction and all being spoken. Jews of all these different nationalities begin to congregate around individual speakers. They they realize that these individual speakers are are, are of all people, Galileans, Galileans, you know, are from the north. Galileans were considered by the Jews in Jerusalem to be hillbillies. Galileans would have had a hick accent of their own. And yet here they are speaking with the works of God in each individual language. Uh, There's so much going on in this passage, biblically and theologically. And I've already touched on just a little bit of it. We're going to do a pretty deep dive. So uh, what does Pentecost mean? Why, what are we supposed to, as readers of the entire Bible, understand by this event and the way it, it all goes down? Several things. First, Pentecost was the 50th day after Passover. Pentecost was 
an agricultural festival. It was the day when farmers brought the first sheaf of wheat from the crop and offered it to God, partly as a sign of gratitude for the, heart, for the crop and partly as a prayer that all the rest of the crop would be safely gathered in. Now, I think Luke would expect us, the reader, to know that connection to Pentecost, the first fruits. And we are to see these 120 new disciples, they're clearly the first fruits of the crop being brought in, and they are anticipating the whole harvest, the whole harvest being the whole of the world yet to come. Actually, a case can be made that there are not one, but three or three other, four total Pentecosts that are found in the book of Acts. So in chapter 8, the Spirit is poured out in the region of Samaria, Uh, upon Philip and the Samaritans. In chapter 10, the Spirit comes down in the region of Caesarea, which was a seacoastal town to the northwest of Jerusalem. Broadly speaking, we would call that Judea. And in chapter 19, the Spirit is poured out in Ephesus during Paul's ministry there. Each of these times, you you hear how how each of these correspond to chapter 1, verse 8. We'll be witnesses in, in Jerusalem here, in Judea and Samaria, there and there, and to the uttermost parts of the world, Ephesus being the uttermost parts of the then-known world. In each of these instances, when people come, uh, are exposed to the gospel for the first time, they begin experiencing crazy manifestations of the Spirit, including the speaking of tongues. And so essentially what we have are not one Pentecost, but four Pentecosts, as the whole crop harvest of the rest of the world begins to be brought in by our God. Secondly, Pentecost was not simply an agricultural festival. Do you, does anybody recall what was the uh, secondary significance of Pentecost? So 50 days after uh, uh, Israel was uh, released from uh, Egypt, Moses went up onto Mount Sinai and he received the law. Pentecost commemorates the very important event in Israel's history when they receive the Ten Commandments. They get the law. They, they enter into the covenant, if you will. And if you recall, the fire of God's presence is there on the mountain. The fire is there. It's, it's a terrifying fire. The people are, are scared out of their wits by the fire. And the people end up rebelling against the law. The story goes on to describe tragically how 3,000 of the Israelites end up dying because as Moses, you know, throws the law down onto the ground because of the uh, golden calves, 3,000 die. But here at this Pentecost, the fire falls not upon a mountain, but upon a people. And where that fire terrified them to death, this fire emboldens them, you know, strengthens them. This fire is the presence of God, and yet it has come to dwell on the people, on the body of Christ, the church. And then we'll look at it next week. Peter goes on to preach his famous Pentecost sermon right after this event. How many people in Jerusalem are saved as a result of Peter's Pentecost sermon? 3,000. So you see, it's kind of, it's this reversal of this greater fulfillment of, um, of, of that Pentecost of the giving of the law. And as the book of Acts will go on to show us, these people, they obey the law because of the spirit 
they're able to obey the law through love. And the, the law is no longer written on cold stone tablets that are shattered, in, shattered into a million pieces. It is written by the Spirit on the people's hearts, which when you hear me say that, I hope those of you who are really, you're really familiar with the Bible, you hear those are totally themes that Paul like, talks a lot about, like Romans chapter 8 and elsewhere. Um, very important for Paul's theology. Paul's theology is, is kind of rooted here in Pentecost. So what we should understand that this Pentecost, the second Pentecost, great Pentecost in Israel's history, marks the turning point from the old, from the old into the new. From the old covenant into the new covenant, from the law that was under the power of sin that put people to death, to the new through the spirit, the law in the spirit, uh, the law by the spirit brings life. And all of that, you know, Paul will go on to write extensively in his letters. This this is the kind of stuff that uh, gets me excited because there's just so many echoes and Pentecost and other parts of the Bible. So many biblical connections that we can make. And you, we could actually talk about it for hours. I'm leaving out about 10 different ones. But uh, it turns out that Pentecost for Israel was a disaster on the mountain. And you may remember too, Moses, we could say that Moses ascended to the mountain, onto the mountain, right? And there on top of the mountain, there were angels, Angels, glorious angels were associated with the giving of the law. Well, here at this new Pentecost, Jesus ascends too. He ascends to heaven, to the mountain, the heavenly mount that is above, surrounded by angels in his glory. And when he takes his throne, listen to what one author um, says on this point. When, When we hear of the tongues of flame resting on the heads of disciples at Pentecost, we should instantly connect it with the biblical imagery of lamps. Disciples are being set up as new light bearers. They are Jesus' new lamps, the king's new lamps. What he says in Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father, which is in heaven. At Pentecost, the church is given the light of the world, Jesus Christ, through the spirit. And and we are to go into the world as these new lamps lighting up the darkness. Amen? I'll highlight one more uh, connection that's commonly pointed out. Pentecost is the reversal of the Tower of Babel. So you go back to Genesis chapter 10. 10 is the table of the nations where you get a list of all of the the different nations uh, of the world. It's followed by chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, where the people build this giant ziggurat, this temple, uh, cake-like. We've talked about it before. The sides of it look like a wedding cake, uh, a stairway to heaven, a temple that is stretching high into the sky. It's kind of the ultimate symbol of man's autonomy and rebellion against God. You say, how so? Well, the Lord made it very clear in the garden that his plan for us as human beings was to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth to be his, his gracious stewards and representatives throughout the earth. Instead, they build a tower as a way to say, we don't want to fill the earth. We, we want to worship demons because it was, it was the worship of demons, of false gods. And so what happens is God judges them by confusing their languages and spreads them out into all of these different people groups. Now, can you hear the echoes of Babel in Pentecost? At that time, 
in the first century, most people in the Mediterranean world would at least be passable in Greek. If you were people who traveled, you, you had to know at least some Greek. Now, the Jews that lived in Jerusalem and Palestine would also have spoken Aramaic. Some would also have known classical Hebrew, and then other people would even know Latin, the, the language of the empire. But here it is. We have all of these Jews from a table of nations. These nations are all listed. And here, here we have Parthians hearing Parthian being spoken, and Medes hearing Median, and Elamites, Elamitish. And they say, in our own languages, our own native tongues, the nations which have been scattered into many different tongues are now gathered at Pentecost through those, that diversity into the unity of the church. They hear the same message. Um, it's definitely a diversity unity moment. And what do they hear? What is the message? We hear the mighty works of God being proclaimed, aka the gospel, the mighty works of God that has happened in Jesus the Messiah. They hear at that moment the gospel contextualized to their native tongues. And so it's this wonderful as I said, reversal of Babel or wonderful reunification of humanity through the diversity of their different cultures, their different races and languages, they are brought by a single message into the same family, the worldwide family of the church. And each of those different races are treated with utmost dignity. I want you to look at verse 12. Or you can listen as I describe it. Notice how the fellow Jews of Jerusalem interpret this moment. The NIV is the translation I'm reading from. It fails us here. It translates verse 12 as saying, they've had too much wine. You know, these people are just babbling. These are the Jews who couldn't speak these different languages think that they're just, they're, they're drunk. And it reminds us, it actually reminds us of the time in the book of 1 Samuel where Hannah is in the temple and she's praying. And Eli, the priest, the leader of Israel, hears her praying. And what does he say? She's drunk. He completely misunderstands it, just like they were misunderstood. But actually, the ESV translation of the Bible gets it right here because it's much more literal. What the people actually said in verse 12 is they are filled with new wine. Yes, they are drunk, but they are drunk on new wine. Just as Jesus said in Mark 2, that no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the, wine, and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine, you always put in what? In new wineskins. The new wine is the spirit. And the new wineskins are all of these people. Pretty cool. On April the 9th, 1906, in a little house on Bonnie Bray Street in Los Angeles, during a prayer meeting there, a person began to speak in tongues. Uh, others followed. News spread quickly that this was happening. Crowds grew. It, it seemed like Pentecost was returning to the City of Angels. So they moved to a larger venue at the former Stevens African Methodist Episcopal Church on Azusa Street. And for three years, the uh, Azusa Street revivals burned, and essentially Pentecostalism, as we know it, uh, as a, a, a feature of a distinctive type of Christianity, Pentecostalism was born on Azusa Street. I don't really want to say 
too much about Pentecostalism this morning. I, I have tremendous respect for our Pentecostal brothers and sisters. Even though their worship service looks a little different than ours, uh, Pentecostals, um, they're, they're incredible brothers and sisters in the faith. And, um, and we have much to learn from them. What I want to focus on is there was an Anglo man there by the name of A.G. Carr. He was the first white man to speak in tongues in Azusa. And a curious fact of history, he and his wife later decided to become missionaries to India. They traveled to India fully expecting that the Holy Spirit, who had already given them some form of tongues at Azusa, would then give them the form of tongues to speak in Hindi. To, the, to those in India. Once they arrived, apparently the Holy Spirit did not. And after some time, they sensed that God was leading them to Hong Kong. So they uh, took their missionary um, efforts to Hong Kong. And once they were there, they wisely started studying Chinese. <laughs> That's how Pentecost actually works. Irenaeus was a third generation church father. He was a disciple of Polycarp, and Polycarp was a disciple of the apostle John. That's why we'd say he's third generation. Irenaeus ended up becoming a missionary to Gaul, which is, which is southern France. And in the year 180, maybe the reason you've heard of Irenaeus is he wrote a very important book in 180 on Christian theology called Against Heresies. And in his introduction to that book, he, he goes on to apologize. He says, I apologize to you, the reader. My Greek is rather crude. He said, the problem is that I've spent so much time and energy learning the language of the Gauls that I, I haven't spoken polished Greek for so long. I, I've been focused entirely on learning the, the, name, the language of the people whom I'm serving as a missionary. That again, I think, is Pentecost. Bringing the gospel to a nation who does not have it in their tongue is Pentecost. Ever since the first century, when Christian missionaries have gone to foreign countries, they've had to learn the language of those countries in order to serve the people there. I mean, you can't tell people about the mighty works of Jesus if they can't understand you. It's, I would say, I would submit to you that Pentecost occurs today very much with Wycliffe Bible translators. They're doing it all over the world with, without the miraculous fanfare, to be sure. But you know, if you go to UCLA and you get a degree in linguistics, a PhD in linguistics, and then you spend 10 to 15 years of your life learning the tribal language of a people in, uh, in a remote part of the world in order to understand that language and give them a properly translated Bible, you are, friends, doing Pentecost. Now, please don't misunderstand me to, to suggest that by saying that, I believe there are no miraculous works of the Spirit. I, I do. I, I'm one of those people who, I've heard way too many stories of Christian missionaries going to a new land and somehow not, giving an entire, not being given an entire knowledge of a language, but they are given some knowledge, rudimentary knowledge of a language in order to communicate the gospel. Uh, I've heard so many uh, American and European missionaries, when they go out into the mission field, if they go out skeptical of the miraculous works of the Spirit, they don't remain that way for very long because <laughs> the Spirit just has a way of, uh, of blowing up their boxes. So I'm not suggesting that the extraordinary doesn't happen today, but I am suggesting that Pentecost is alive and well every time 
the Bible is translated into a native tongue. Let me conclude my sermon with this. It's kind of a strange conclusion. I, I admit it because I'm going to give you 13 points. <laughs> it's not a great way to conclude any sermon. They, they would never teach you to do that in seminary. But 13 points, and they're all very short, on how the Pentecostal fires spread in the first century. The Roman Empire in the first century had an estimated population of 50 million people. Of that, we estimate 10% of them were Jews. So what? There would have been 5 million Jews in the world on that first day of Pentecost. And how many of those Jews were actually Christians? 120. It's such a, like a, a statistically minuscule number. Like how do you get from that statistically minuscule number to overcoming, conquering the Roman Empire in 300 years? Well, there's a book that was written in 1997 by a Christian sociologist named Rodney Stark. It's titled, The Rise of Christianity, How the Obscure Marginal Jesus Movement Became the Dominant Religious Force in the Western World in a Few Centuries. It provides a perspective on how Christianity spread, a sociological perspective. And he says there's 13, or maybe somebody else has boiled it down to 13 points that I, some of these you may know of. Some of these you'll be surprised by. Number one, Christianity normally drew her converts from people who were secular or nominal in their faith. It wasn't actually in the most religiously devoted people, the Apostle Paul notwithstanding, but it was largely in secular and nominal populations. Number two, Christianity probably drew the largest number of its converts from the upper class. We tend to think of Christianity as a poor man's religion, uh, but it largely in the first century spread through the upper class with people who had the good life, but essentially became dissatisfied with the good life and its failures. Number three, Christianity spread because Christians cared for each other in times of sickness and disease. Their communal compassion both staved off death and served as an example to outsiders of the transforming power of people who love their family. And number four, the Christians also loved the outsiders. They also cared for the sick outsiders, which won them a hearing with unbelievers. Number five, women were honored in Christianity. Baby girls were not killed. Females of all ages were to be protected. Husbands and not just their wives were expected to be sexually chaste, which is a bit of a radical idea back then. Number six, Christians had more babies than non-Christians, and abortions in the Christian church were considered anathema. The early Christians simply outbirthed the pagans and took the pagans' babies who were discarded on the streets. Number seven, Christianity grew when it remained an open network with connections into the lives of non-Christians. So Christianity essentially grew when the church didn't become insular and only care about itself, but it, but it was networked with non-Christians. Number eight, Christians were overrepresented in cities, which made them more influential than their numbers because culture tends to flow from cities to the countryside. Number nine, 
Christianity gave much-needed dignity to all human beings. They provided welcome for strangers, provided community, and offered a refuge from a brutal world. I'm kind of running out of steam here. (laughs) Number 10, Christian martyrs galvanized and inspired the faith of the early church. The martyrs were hugely important as heroes. Number 11, Christianity in the first few centuries required great sacrifice upon its adherents. And it entailed bearing a certain stigma. This process of sacrifice and stigma scared off free riders and made Christianity more virulent and vibrant as a faith. Number 12, membership in the church was expensive and a bargain at the same time. That is, following Christ costs you something, but by becoming a Christian, you also gained something. You gained the family, physical support, relational attachments, shared emotional lives, all of that with other believers. And then finally, 13, Christianity provided rewards. The reward of a virtuous life, which is indeed a reward, and the rewards of an eternal life yet to come. I, I hope that wasn't too much for you. Uh, hopefully you're able to appreciate. I thought at a 30,000 foot view, that's really interesting to, to see sociologically how Pentecost spread. It's like getting above a wildfire and seeing, oh, it went up this pass. Oh, it went up that pass. I, I think they gave us a pretty good playbook, didn't they? Like if we played the game today by that playbook, if all the churches in the Treasure Valley lived by those 13, man, we would make significant inroads in spreading the gospel here. But the simplest answer to the spread and rise of Christianity, and the one that Stark as a sociologist doesn't talk about, is simply that Jesus sent the fire. (laughs) He sent the fire. The Spirit is the fiery coronation gift, the kingly gift of all gifts that Jesus, when he went to his throne, sent down upon his church. Once he ascended, it was enthroned. The wind and the fire blew upon every nation. It was Jesus who made Pentecost happen. And it is Jesus whom we have to trust make Pentecost happen again in our country and again in the church today. Uh, We need to pray, as the front of the bulletin says, uh, J.C. Ryle was praying it in the 19th century, we need to be be praying for a new and great outpouring of the Spirit to reignite the American church. We need to pray that it would reignite our church and every church in the Treasure Valley. Those of you who've listened to me preach for a while, you, you know it won't be surprising for you to hear me say that I'm relative, I'm pretty culturally pessimistic right now about America, and I'm, I'm pretty pessimistic about the health of the church in America. Um, I think the church is fairly sick. I think we can all look out and say our country is tremendously sick. What I have to do in my pessimism, or you might call it realism, <laughs> I have to remind myself that Jesus can turn things around like that, like, like the snap, like the, the, the flicking of his pinky finger. As somebody pointed out to me this week, you know, during the Cold War, nobody thought that the Soviet bloc would fall. Well, not like that. I mean, until it actually happened, few analysts, even fiercely anti-Soviet analysts, believed that it, it was going or could happen. 
You know, everyone, with very few exceptions, assumed that that the Soviet methods of indoctrination were invincible and inevitable. Um, That that most people believed the propaganda without question. That all of the civic institutions that had been destroyed, that they could not be rebuilt. Uh, Soviet totalitarianism's reign over Europe, they thought it was inevitable. It wasn't inevitable. Um, Even when every plausible scenario suggested that it was, why? Simply because Jesus Christ is on his throne, people, and he can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. Revival in the church, we must believe, we must believe it's always, always a possibility. Pentecost, a new Pentecost is always a possibility. Transformation of a society, it can happen rapidly. It has happened rapidly, both for ill and for good. And so because Jesus has ascended as king, it is not inevitable that the church has to stay stay sickly for for a long time. Um, It is not inevitable that our, our country has to be torn apart by hatred and injustice and turmoil. It was not inevitable that the Roman Empire wouldn't fall in 300 years or 300, three centuries. And so I just simply say to you, I mean, keep praying. Keep praying, let your kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we need to be praying daily. Send your fire and wind upon the church once more, Father. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now let there be a new Pentecost. And we'll pray for that right now. Let's bow our heads. Our Heavenly Father, how we need the Holy Spirit to rekindle the fire in our churches how we need the spirit of peace to sweep over our fractured country, how we need the spirit of truth to show the world your truth and not lies, how we need the spirit of righteousness to put an end to all injustice, injustice upon all people and of all kinds. And so we say, send the spirit again in power upon our churches that we would bear witness to the mighty acts your mighty acts, the mighty acts of God, the mighty acts of Jesus, and that we would follow in the footsteps of the early church and implementing the playbook that they have given us. Father, let thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Revive us. Revive us again, O Lord. Revive us again. Amen.